And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, which doesn't exist, it's Jonathan Shard and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast, which does exist. As, as an anthologist, Jonathan, I just had this idea. While you were doing the introduction, it's not what we were going to talk about at all. Excellent. You should do an anthology of stories set in and around the Coot Street Motel 6. <laughs> you don't think that might be just a bit in-jokey, Gary? Yeah, I mean, why not? <laughs> micro-publishing is the thing. If there's micro-publishing and there's just disappearing a whole bunch of people's hard work. <laughs> Guess what I read this week, Gary? What did you read this week? I finished reading because, you know, you know how many science fiction novels I've read in 2017? You get a guess. No, I, I'm going to say less than five. Two. Two. I, have I was I, I was I was right. That's less than five. You were close. I okay. read I read Martians Abroad by Carrie Vaughan, which is a very uh-huh. nice sort of Highland pastiche. And I just finished reading yesterday New York twenty one forty by Kim Stanley Robinson. And which I, hmm? uh, which we, and we plan to um, talk to Stan about that in another week or two. I think. If we can, yeah, we, we, we've got hopes, yeah. not plans, just still hopes, but we do hope to do it. Um, and. I found it's a fascinating book. I had a real, I had a conversation, a, a, an interchange online with a few people in social media, including Mr. Gregory mm-hmm. Brentford, Nebula Winner, about uh, the writing of Stan Robinson. And I'm struck by the fact that he's probably one of the few people who seems to be thinking about science fiction as a literary form in and of itself. I had a few um, interactions because there's a, a quote, there's a line, there's a line in, in, in the novel where mm. one of the protagonists takes a shot at people who don't like info dumps. Yes, I remember that. Quite a sharp you – now, it's not Stan himself, and I'm sure it's filtered through a little bit of being irked. But uh, I, was, I quoted it because I'm amused by it. I'm amused by that he, that, that he was annoyed enough by it, I assume, or bemused enough by it, I don't know which, to actually say something in the book. And then to end up in a conversation where people were arguing that these la- the, the large novels, particularly of the last 10 years that Stan has done, you know, starting with Galileo's Dream, I guess, have been structurally flawed because of the approach he takes, this Dos Passos approach to including non-fictional yeah. material and all that kind of thing, uh, as a way, I think, of deepening and broadening the world, the world he's showing you in his books. You know, that, that's an inherently artistically flawed decision. What, what I find is interesting is people are, are not seeing that it's a deliberate structural piece mm-hmm. of experimentation on Robinson's behalf, but are instead seeing it as poor writing. You know, like, well, you know, if you are, you know, all your, your um, exposition should basically be invisible in the text. Now, it strikes me that that's one approach, and that's a very reasonable approach. It's a very admirable mm-hmm. approach, but I don't think it necessarily uh, confirms that any other approach is by its very nature flawed. And I mean, I think, you know, I think... Mm-hmm. St- Robinson does it really cleverly. I mean, he is balancing, if you like, that bestseller approach of taking a plot and bouncing it from one perspective to another to another. Because I think there's like each section in the novel, there are eight viewpoint pieces, and then there's interstitial material that's all non-fictional or quotes from poet Walt Whitman or whatever else. Uh-huh. Um, but there doesn't, you know, I'm bemused that people don't seem to want to see much formal experimentation 
with science fiction's science fiction's approach to to novel telling, basically. I'm not sure that the uh, the, the, the what Stan is doing that, and especially uh, what he was uh, doing one in in, in tw- I, I, I've got the date wrong. Twenty three. Twenty one forty. No, no, not that's New York twenty one forty. Oh. I'm thinking of twenty the 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 the, the, the solar system one. <laughs> Stan, stop putting dates in your novels because I'm getting them all confused. Was that like twenty three forty two or something or? No, it was twenty eight twelve. Twenty eight twelve. No, it was not. <laughs> that's terrible. You that's the worst thing ever. It, 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 I'll double check, but I'm sure it's like twenty three twenty three twelve. Twenty three twelve. All right, maybe. My point is this. Um, 2312. That, that was much more. Okay, 2312 was much more of those Passos novel than, uh, than New York 2140 is, uh, although some of the same techniques are there. But the fact that we can call it a Dos Passos technique based on a high modernist American writer of the 1920s indicates to me that it's nothing new or experimental. It was experimental 70 years ago. I think what people object to is that if you're writing a fully plotted, straight-ahead adventure story, you shouldn't stop to explain things in it, which is the old Heinlein rule. But, but then um, what, makes, what would make anybody... Basically making... Yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. No, ask the question. I was going to say, what makes anybody think that Stan is attempting in these books that he's been writing in 2312, in Aurora, in New York 2140, in Shaman, in Galileo's Dream, uh, that he's attempting to tell a straightforward adventure novel? He doesn't telegraph that that's his attempt at all. He's never he's never told that kind of thing. But this is what I think you meant when you said he was interested in science fiction as a literary form in terms of other literary forms, not simply inheriting um, the, 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 the Heinleinian kind of uh, straight-ahead narrative, which, by the way, even Heinlein more or less abandoned by the end of his career. I think there is uh, an objection to uh, info dumps from people who don't read enough fiction to realize how absolutely common info dumps are, and not just in literary fiction. I mean, you can't read War and Peace without learning a lot about the Napoleonic Wars and the structure of the Russian army and so forth and so on. You can't read Moby Dick without learning a lot about whales. If you've ever read any novel by James Michener, very best-selling, popular, uh, street-level, you know, populist writer, every novel starts out with a 30 or 40 or 50, 60 page info dump of the geology of Colorado or Israel or the Hawaiian Islands, which you're 100 pages into a Michener novel before a character shows up sometimes. Yeah. And look, so somebody this is in not con- a new thing. No, I know. Somebody in conversation actually referred to Stan as the James Michener of science fiction, which I think is a little bit sort of reductive and unfair, but probably has it's some very- element. It's a little element of truth. But what I wonder uh, is whether. This angle of criticism, of saying that the structural approach that Robinson has taken to his novels in the last decade and a half or two decades, mm-hmm. actually masks a political disagreement. That the actual oh. disagreement is disagreeing with a leftist, left-wing, anti-capitalist utopian. That that was, the, you know, that... I mean, Aurora was vastly controversial in some circles in science fiction because it actually challenged the whole idea of leaving Earth as an enterprise for a variety right. of reasons. In many ways, the true core of New York 2140 is it questions very strongly the whole mission of capitalism, what capitalism does, you know. Yeah. And, and so I wonder that when some of these criticisms are laid against these books, they're not with the... 
you know, the, the, the exposition that's in them or anything else. It's actually that people disagree with them politically and they're offended by them. I think, I think Aurora fundamentally offended a whole batch of hardcore science fiction people because it challenged the legitimacy of the mission that has been in the background of so much science fiction for the past 70 years or more. I think that's true, and I think it was deliberately intended to do that. Um, and and, and it, it is a politically charged fiction. I don't think Stan would uh, disagree at all. There, I don't want to get too much into this conversation because we hope we'll be able to talk to Stan about it. But you know, there is also a kind of liberal idealism in a lot of his fiction. Uh, even in Aurora, which was a real downer when it comes to generation starships and so forth and so on, had a semi-optimistic ending. Uh, but the optimistic ending, which was made explicit in, in New York 2140, is that these disasters are going to happen. He's not optimistic at all anymore about, about the earth, but he believes they're fixable through manipulation of the economic and social systems we already have, and that's interesting. The thing that surprises, I think, most people about New York 2140 is that it's kind of a lot of fun. Um, it's, it's, it's a novel about survival. It's a novel about uh, about partly about a contest between capitalism and environmentalism, but the characters in it are able to cap or able to monetize uh, the flooded New York, even. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, so, somewhere or other, he's referred to it as a comedy of the commons, and I think mm -hmm. that's probably fair. I mean, he's pro you know, he's admitted that he has put his thumb on the scales, climatologically speaking, that the actual mm -hmm. climatological outcomes in the book are quite unlikely. Uh, yeah. But they served his purpose, you know, sort of in terms of the kind of story that he wanted to tell and this idea, which he has touched on repeatedly in his fiction over the years of, if you like, common people coming together and overcoming uh, the problems that face them when they're allowed to. That underpinned yeah. everything from, I mean, probably the Wild Shore forwards, but certainly Pacific Edge forwards um, and probably most of his best work, uh, which I think this stands alongside. Uh, and I'm, I'm it does, and one of the things one of the things you don't see in his work is is a single heroic figure uh, that that sort of uplifts the save civilization, or whatever. The, the there are a couple of such figures. There are probably you're right, twenty or thirty such figures in the Mars trilogy, none of whom dominate the the trilogy. It becomes yeah. uh, a, a kind. Of, and, and 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 for that sense, we've we've talked about this with him and about him before that there's a utopian scheme to it. And, and there, I think there's a critique of science fiction involved in that. I think he was critiquing the Generation Starship um, and, and, and Aurora. And I think he's critiquing the standard issue climate catastrophe novel in this one. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I mean, I, I like it very much. I think it's one of the most substantial science fiction novels we're likely to see all, all year. I thought it was criminal that Aurora didn't make a whole bunch of awards ballots in its year. I, don't, I think it got up for the Campbell and nothing else. So, you know, I hope that won't happen next year. I think that, you know, I hope New York 2140 is out there. And before we bounce but on I think the show, yeah. well, no, when you talk about when you talk about this being evidence that he's looking at science fiction as a literary form, that means uh, it, it sounds pretentious, but it's not. What it means when you mention people like Dos Passos, for example, or for that matter, John Kessel's novel refers from everybody to from the uh, from the um, Iranian poet Hafez to I think he's Iranian to William Blake to um, 
Chuck Palahniuk, they, these are writers drawing on a much broader literary tradition than just previous science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are writers who are uh, very well read uh, in, in a lot of different kinds of literature. They want to bring these different forms of literature in. And Stan has been doing this uh, with varying degrees of success his whole career. That in some ways, his most experimental novel in terms of narrative form is The Years of Rice and Salt. Yes. Where he's using various uh, non-Western narrative techniques. Uh, he has characters in the Bardo in interstitial chapters, which, by the way, is the last time we heard about the Bardo until George Saunders came along with, with, with Lincoln. Um, so he's, he's always drawn on a variety of literary sources. And I've always wondered about that because uh, that does possibly leave some science fiction writers out of – the loop in some of these references, but uh, but you don't need them in order to understand what he's doing. You just need to understand that you know he's trying to make a complex work of literature and not just tell a story. Telling a story is an important part of it, uh, and he does that very well. But he wants to include information as part of the structure of the novel. And my point is that that I think has only become a controversial issue in science fiction. But you, you can say argue you can you can argue for example that you can't have info dumps in mystery novels, but if mm-hmm. you read a bunch of Dick Francis novels, you're going to ner- know way more about horse racing <laughs> than you ever thought you wanted to. It's absolutely true. It's just like if you go and read a Tom Clancy novel. Tom Clancy novels absolutely. are nothing but info dumps, uh, or, you know, lar- large info dumps about you know the structures of submarines. Tedious as all get out. I guess it comes down to it's, it's whether you're interested or not. I was fascinated in New York 2140 with the glimpses that it primarily showed uh, you know, about, of the city of New York and its history and its future. That's what I was interested mm-hmm. in. I mean, there's one thing I craved, actually, through the whole book. I'm curious if you did when you were reading it. I craved a map. I would have loved to have had a map of New York 2140 as the city was inundated to look at as I was reading. That wonderful cover, is that the Martinier cover? I, I don't know, yeah, but yeah. But it's, it's, it's almost that. The reason I didn't was because I've been in the MetLife Tower and Madison Square Park, and that I, I kind of knew the geography well enough to figure out, okay, lower Manhattan is under this much water, and somewhere upper Manhattan, the upper west side, has these 300-story mega towers on them. Uh, so I could pretty much visualize my way around, and I, I don't know, maybe he uh, assumed – too broad a knowledge among too many readers of what the geography of New York was like. I don't know. I mean, it's just, just curious because you look at maps of Manhattan and of the the greater area of New York and around New Jersey, mm. just trying to sort of go, okay, well, what happens here? What happens there? Um, he, yeah, he talks about the Meadowlands being flooded. He talks about parts of Long Island being affected. And some of it mm. I get. Some of it I get quite clearly and have a very strong idea of. But other parts of it I'm left wondering about. And it just would have been nice to have. I mean, actually, what would have been the best to have would have been a Google Maps overlay. That, that would have been cool. That would have been fun, right? It's, it's, a, it's a completely new marketing idea. So you could sit there and, and basically add your inundation. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, which, which would be interesting. Uh, but an aside, nonetheless, I think it's a great book. I, I recommend New York 2140 very highly. Probably one of the things that delighted me the most about the online exchange I had about the book is it appears that something that was said in conversation a couple of years ago uh, by Stan has proven not to be true. 
at one point he did say that this was the last of his big books that he was going to write for Orbit, and then he was going to go on to short fiction and novellas. But I understand that he has already invested in writing his next novel, which uh-huh. is a good thing. Even though, I mean, I don't, I don't suppose, you know, sort of, I mean, should we be investing so much of our hope in, in, in our, you know, as, as the major generation of science fiction writers of, you know, 65-year-old writers who are sort of getting, I guess, to the latter parts of their career? It should be the hot young writers we're paying attention to the most, I suppose. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. I think that, uh, you know, you have, you have some very experienced writers who are still doing new and interesting things. Ian MacDonald is another one. Um, John Kessel is another one, his first novel in 20 years. And they read like fresh new imaginings. Yes. Uh, they, 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 and there's absolutely no reason that they shouldn't do that. Uh, and on, on the other hand, if you want classic space opera, you've got the Expanse novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, which are very, very good, and they're by younger writers. They are. Mm. And I have to say I've been watching The Expanse very eagerly on television th- th- you know, th- this year and have been uh-huh. completely consumed by it. I was saying to, uh, to, to Marianne, my wife, uh, just the other day that I don't know that the young science fiction reader I was in the 1980s would ever have believed it would have been possible to get as hardcore, pure quill a piece of science fiction as the expanse onto television. No, you would not have been able to imagine that at all. And I, I find it uh, difficult to imagine even now. I think there's a there's a generation. Okay, I'm, I'm going to pull the pull the age card out uh, because I've talked to people uh, older than I am about what it was like in 1959, I guess, yeah. to see the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the Twilight Zone was. Rod Serling kind of spookiness that, but but it was mostly science fiction. A lot of Richard Matheson stories. That even before Star Trek, that was the first time I saw on television a story I had read, mm-hmm. which was Richard Matheson's Third from the Sun. And so that kind of revelation that they would even try science fiction, mm-hmm. you didn't expect them to do it well. You just wanted them to try it. And with Star Trek, which at the time seemed absolutely like this is it this is science fiction and looking back on it now well some of it was some of it was wagon train in space um by the time you get to the second battlestar galactic because the first one doesn't count then you realize okay somebody out there grew up reading science fiction now we're not dealing with a group of aging screenwriters who've heard about this stuff we're dealing with a group of people who are of the generation that that in which Star Trek is something their parents watched. So they, so, so, so that kind of knowingness, I think, goes into the expanse. It goes into uh, a lot of the movies we're seeing now as well. Uh, but, also, but it's also it's, it's not Star Wars, Star Trek type science fiction. I mean, no, not that, at all. That, that's the populist science fiction that's been the most successful for the past thirty years. Um, this is something else. I mean, it, it's it's even more hardcore science fiction than a Battlestar Galactica or something. And possibly as well, the yes. fact that, and this this may be the, the thing that actually occurs to me more than anything when I think about it, in terms of science fiction set off the planet Earth or around it, mm-hmm. that's not part of an existing franchise. I can't think of anything of substantial like it at all. What do you mean not part of an existing franchise? I mean, it's become a franchise. But it's not a franchise. It's just it's one one thing, right? It, it, it's a series of books and their adaptation. Star Wars right. and its various things are a vast franchise. Star Trek and its various things, mm. vast franchise, multiple television series, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Marvel, 
same kind of a deal. Uh, most of these things tend to elaborate, you know, like expand out into a sprawling franchise of multiple bits and pieces that are kept at a mm. certain, I, want, I don't want to say level, that's not really fair, but are a particular kind of, of, of storytelling. The Expanse isn't. This is like a series of books adapted. I mean, I remember a while ago they said that they it's were like, going to... It's, like it's a science oh. fiction Game of Thrones in that sense. Well, that, you do that, have yeah. a core text, you have an author, or in this case a collaborative author, behind it, and the people doing the adaptation who I know nothing about are apparently paying serious attention to the novels. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, both Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank are actively involved in producing the series, so that mm. would have some of the, you know, be some of the reason for that. And, you know, the fact the series has been adapted for, you know, extended for a third season is hugely encouraging. You know, I, I wonder if this is going to be one of those slow burn series that grows and grows and grows each season. I, I hope it is because I want them to get to the end of the story they're telling. But it's also if it can succeed commercially, because it's got to be very expensive to produce. Mm-hmm. If it can conce- succeed commercially, it tells you that the core science fiction readership has actually fundamentally expanded. Or if not readership audience, let's say. Not readership, audience. I audience, mean, yeah. Every, audience, yeah. Every, this, this is my point about the history kind of, of science fiction in the movies and on television, that every generation learns a little bit more. Uh, the sophisticated science fiction audience um, isn't large enough to sustain a program like The Expanse, frankly. I don't think the entire readership of science fiction would necessarily give you significant ratings on a, on a major TV show. But what you do have is a broader audience who over years have, has been educated in some of the conventions of science fiction to the point where a fairly complicated, fairly advanced um, future society such as the one depicted here is, is now acceptable. People understand they don't have to have things footnoted for them now. Yeah. The vocabulary of science fiction has reached a much broader audience and thanks in part to Star Wars and Star Trek and um, – Maybe not the Marvel stuff because that's hard to say that there's much science fiction that you can learn from that. But what the Expanse shows you, I think, is that uh, you know things like well, the, years ago, I think James Cameron's people bought the TV rights to uh, the Mars trilogy by Stan Robinson. You could now see mm-hmm. that being made in theory in a useful way. Uh, that someone also picked up the rights to Frederick Pohl's Gateway, which was supposed mm-hmm. to be in pre-production somewhere. Now. I could now see that if The Expanse finds a stable audience, there will be an audience for that as well. It could actually succeed and bring out the complexities of the books or whatever else. You know, So it could be really interesting. And it's been enormously encouraging to see it do well. Um, I'm going to be very interested to see how it continues. I mean, there's, what, three or four episodes left in the season. And it's been just, mm-hmm. just terrific. I have to watch the new season. I'm not. I'm not caught up with it at all. I like the second season. But one, much one of the things first, that supports. Yeah. yeah, I was told by. Uh, I, I think this is not private knowledge, but Joe Haldeman has sold the Forever War again. Again, this again. It's one of those things. Again, again, but again in a serious way. Um, so, but you're right. Every time something like this works, and especially something that's actually based on knowledgeable, competent literary. Literate, at least literate, I'd say literary science fiction novels, um, that makes the novel seem more and more a viable property, as opposed, for example, to the graphic novel, which mm-hmm. is the source of so many movies, because I think 
frankly, they're easier for movie producers to read than actual fiction. Um, no, I, I, th- I think that's I think that's happily glib. I think it's probably fairer to say, at the very least, that a successful, well done graphic novel implies a large audience and is effectively already storyboarded to some degree in that's a simple true. way for themselves. That's absolutely true. You know, so you can sort of see that. Um, so that's sort of interesting. Um, to 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 jump around a little bit because this feels like one of those jumping around conversations. Having talked about be. the Expanse and Stan Robinson, you spent your weekend running a convention, Gary. I spent my weekend running part of a convention, the International Conference on the Fantastic on the in the in the on the Fantastic in the Arts, and um, at, at Fort Lauderdale, our, uh, our, our maybe our first Australian visitor in many years, Cat Sparks was there. Uh, Joe Monty came down from Saga Press. Uh, we had um, uh, well, a usual combination of uh, of academic papers, which I never get a chance to go to and. Might not even if I did. Um, and sitting around the pool talking about whatever comes up, who's doing what, and getting to know uh, people. It's, it, it, it's What's interesting to me about this is that it's not a convention where you do publishing deals. It's not a convention where you can massage your reputation because there probably aren't enough uh, professionals there to make it political in any way, which is why everybody does nothing but relax and – I always have a, a, a good time there. So let me ask you a question with ICFA. Conventions go on the road. Why doesn't ICFA go on the road? ICFA doesn't go on the road because we know how to do what we're doing where we do it. Um, and, and there is an association. Uh, we began with funding many, many years ago from, interestingly enough, from the mother of Thomas Burnett Swan, um, who funded the original conferences oh. over a few years. They were called Swan Cons for a while. <gasps> Until we have swan cons. That part of the confusion that that caused it to be renamed. And there's a, there's there's a story um, in which the funding from this very well-to-do um, genteel southern lady withdrew the funding after a convention um, at which Harlan Ellison was a guest. And I, I'm not going to make any. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not to, I'm not going to fill in the details. Okay, enough said. But yes. After after the after the subsidies disappeared, and the subsidies were were generous subsidies. They were subsidies that allowed the convention to bring in people like Isaac Basheva Singer and John Barth and Tom Stoppard. Um, then, in order to keep the convention going, a group of us, of which I was part, this was a long time ago created an association and found a, a couple of uh, places to have the convention very cheaply. It actually was in Texas for a couple of years, moved to Fort Lauderdale, and we have a very successful and skilled uh, hotel uh, wrangler who knows how to make deals with hotels. We make multi-year deals with the hotels. Everybody knows where it is from year to year. And uh, it's a little bit like ReaderCon in that sense that it's uh, it's it's located in one 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 safe spot at one time of the year, and it it builds up uh, a, a kind of habit, and people have gone there. If so it's, you, uh, it's it's it, go ahead. I'm sorry. If you took it on the road, I know where you should take it. Where would that be? I think you should run Ikra in Cuba. Havana. I think that would be interesting. Well, I would go to Ikra in Havana. 
I would. That's a good idea. Also, we don't actually. We could. We could probably get to know those Cuban science fiction writers that are now being published a lot. When Karen Lord was there one year, uh, winning the Crawford Award, as a matter of fact, uh, and we found out, as you and I later found out in a podcast, that her house in Barbados is surrounded by singing tree frogs or something. We all wanted to have a Barbados convention, and it turns out that she and Toby Buckle had already had a Barbados convention. Why wasn't I invited to that? Let me ask you. Well, I'm the wrong person to ask, but you know, you have to wonder. I mean, I don't know how you look in in, in, in like bathers, but you know that may be some of it. I don't know. I wouldn't want to go there. One, one, one of the other things about conventions that travel around is that you have a new committee every year, and this has sometimes created problems with world fantasy. It sometimes created problems with world cons. That by and large, <coughs> every year's convention, unless it happens to be at a place where it had recently been, which has happened to world fantasies twice now. Uh, or unless it happens to deal with a committee that travels with a convention, you're dealing with essentially first-timers in many of these conventions, and that can be a recipe for catastrophe. Yeah, I guess it can. Interesting. Well, it's I mean, and, and you, of course, presented the annual Crawford Award, named after someone uh, yes. named Crawford. Well, okay, there's a story behind that also. Uh, since I've been involved with this since basically the Jurassic uh, at uh, one of our guests of honor very early in the convention was Andre Norton, and she befriended a couple of us. I did not get to know her well. Uh, she was – if anybody describes Andre Norton as a little old lady librarian from the Midwest, that's what she was. She was very prim, very proper, really sharp, had a really sharp sense of humor when she chose to wield it. But she felt that her career – for some reason, and I'm not sure of the history behind this, was promoted by a guy named William Crawford who started one of the first fan presses back in the late 1940s. I later found out from other people, including David Hartwell, that Crawford may have not been the most honest uh, in, in his dealings with writers, but that's not that unusual from publishers of that era. Anyway, she wanted to honor William Crawford, and so we named the award after Crawford, and she gave a small endowment uh, to, to get it going. And since then, it's it's actually had a pretty good track record. Our first Crawford Award went to Charles DeLint for his first novel. Uh, the second or third one went to Jonathan Lethem for his first novel. We've had, I don't know, at one point I calculated how many people went on to win, you know, Hugo's and Nebula's and World Fantasy Awards and World Horror Awards and that sort of thing. Um, the year we gave Mary Rickert uh, the Crawford Award, she won two World Fantasy Awards that same fall. So that may be good news to Charlie Jane Andrews, who won this year's Crawford <laughs> Award, because she's certain to be on other ballots. It's It would seem likely. Uh, she, you know, she is both personally very popular and widely known and also has you know, you know had a great deal of success with All the Birds in the Sky, which I liked very much, and which is on my personal Hugo ballot when I was nominating uh, earlier in the year. Uh, and of course, the outcome of that will come out this coming week. I think round about Tuesday, Tuesday, you know, like Norwegian time or something, right? So I don't know yeah. when actually in the rest of the world. Probably something like three a.m. here in Perth or something. But it will be interesting to see what that looks like. That'll be an interesting discussion to see where we are in terms of the influence of science fiction's radical right, and whether the ship mm -hmm. has radically lefted itself again or whether you know you know things are still amiss that will be interesting um 
and then yes, Helsinki itself. So what else is going on in your science fiction world, Gar? Or, or, um, or do we just I finish am- with the shortest Cood Street podcast in ages? <laughs> <laughs> No, I was I was looking at um, I, I just I, I was just reading um, and and writing a review of your year's best science fiction. I now have uh, Neil Clark's year's best science fiction. Neil was at for this year as well, um, and we um, and I was trying to think what the, the, the story that was the story that's in both of them, and I believe is in more than that was Sam Miller's Things with Beards, uh, which is. An interesting story because it's not the first variation on. But here, here's a question: because you 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 bought the story, you published the story, is it a variation on John W. Campbell's Who Goes There, or is it just a variation on the John Carpenter movie The Thing? Or is it just a variation on Peter Watts The Things? Um, or a variation on Peter Watts The Things, which I think explicitly was. Derived from the Carpenter movie rather than the Campbell story. I think it's probably a riff on the movie. Would be my guess. I mean, Sam's the guy to sort of say so uh, and and, and confirm. I mean, I didn't publish it originally; I just reprinted it. So so he and I didn't have any conversations about the story. But you know, it's it it isn't. It's an interesting story. I think it broadens the perspective of the of the issues that are being looked at in that. Uh, that that sphere, the sphere of the things, uh, without actually adding anything um, new, particularly to, to it in terms of you know, science fictional thinking. Well, this is this is what led me to believe, uh, what led me to start thinking about what you know what characterizes the science fiction that we have today. That um, and, and and you mentioned the word perspective. I think that's crucial. I think you're right. The basic story uh, was was laid out by who goes there in 1939. And that wasn't substantially changed, really, by the 1951 Howard Hawks Christian Nyby movie. It certainly wasn't changed very much by. Actually, actually, it was closer to being accurate uh, when when Carpenter made it. Carpenter's movie uh, struck me as being a lot more like the Campbell story. But neither Peter Watts nor Sam Miller are trying to do anything different from the story, other than change the perspective from which it's viewed. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Then I started thinking about a lot of the things we've talked about in terms of new voices in science fiction. Not just new voices, but new angles, I guess. Um, Ian MacDonald's dealing with, with, with Turkish and Brazilian and Indian points of view. Uh, with futures that otherwise are not terribly innovative, but, but they're innovative because they're coming from different angles. Uh, certainly, Nedi Okorafor gives us uh, a, a Nigerian or a, a Sudanese angle in, in, in case of summer notes. All of these things are no longer about trying to think up radical new ideas as much as they're thinking up radical new perspectives on what science fiction is. So my theory is that science fiction is becoming largely about perspective and is no longer simply the big idea fiction that we thought of in the 40s. You don't have to have a brand new idea to write a really good science fiction story these days. But, and I'm not expressing a point of view when I say this, but I'm just responding to what you've said, um, mm-hmm. are these perspectives fundamentally new, or are there just more of them? Are the perspectives that we're seeing in science fiction 
and fantasy and horror in the period from roughly, say, 2000 to the present that much different than the perspectives you saw in science fiction between, say, 1965 and 75. Now, my, I have my own answer to that, I think, but I'm curious as to what yours would be. I, I, no, I, I think they are new. I think their perspectives new to science fiction. Uh, they're not perspectives that are at all new to, to, to literature or to culture in, 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 in general. But what would, your, what would your response to that be? I think some of it is new, and, and I think it's also much more prevalent and integrated, and I think that's maybe the key. I don't think it's ah. completely novel to provi- you know, provide a gay perspective on science fiction, say. But I think it is something that to, to, that a gay perspective, for example, an LGBTQ perspective, is yeah. much more common, much more integrated, much less questioned. You know, I found myself editing four novellas and a couple of short stories not three months ago, two months ago. And I, mm-hmm. I realized after the fact that most of them had LGBTQ protagonists and were from an LGBTQ perspective – and I kind of hadn't even really given it any thought. I was aware of it, but I hadn't given it any thought. It wasn't like, oh, my God, look at this. It's just like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, you know, sort of Passing Strange by Ellen Clay just will be this way, and Agent Streamland by Caitlin Keenan will be that way, and Time Was by Ian MacDonald will be this way, and da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. But it's noteworthy because I don't know that any other time in my editing career I would have found that both, first of all, to find myself edit, dealing with those perspectives in that way and then to do, do it in that quantity of work that I was encountering. Well, my, my, the perspective, I think, is important because it reinvents the entire field, in a sense. You can go back and look at – a good example is uh, what we've talked about more than once on the podcast is, is Kids Johnson's Dream Life of Velvet Bow, which is taking Lovecraftian material and looking at it from essentially a feminist perspective. And by the same token, Victor Laval's The Ballad of Black Tom, taking familiar Lovecraft material and looking at it from the perspective of, of, a, of a young black man in, in New York in the 1920s. The, the material isn't even supposed to be new, but the perspective makes you sort of reinvent the entire field. And I think that's, I think that's what's going on in science fiction now. I think it's an explosion of perspective. Uh, I would argue that uh, for – my, my, my quick and, and dirty and completely made up on the spot theory of the history of science fiction, which I was talking to you about just before we started, was that that was not really a concern in the 1920s, in the beginning decades of science fiction. Adventure stories, maybe with a little science lesson, according to Grunsbeck, but adventure stories dominated. <clears throat> and then with Astounding and Orlin Tremaine and then Campbell – Ideas became important. You didn't get rid of the adventure fiction, but ideas made you rethink the adventure fiction. Um, and then later when you start getting stylistic experiments, uh, that makes you rethink the big idea of fiction. And uh, I'm talking about people like Delaney and, and Russ and Zelazny and so forth and so on. Um, if you look at the cyberpunk movement, a little, not a lot of the science fiction in cyberpunk was terribly new, but – you're looking at it with a different attitude, so you could look at that as the attitude era of science fiction. What I'm saying is that what's going on now is that you, when you change the perspective, when you add perspectives, you can go back and look at the entire history of the field, and it becomes new again. Um, 
who goes there or the thing becomes a news story in Sam Miller's hands as it became a news story in Peter Watts's hands. And Lovecraft's uh, horror at Red Hook becomes a news story in the hands of Victor Lavelle. There's another Lovecraft novel coming that's just out now, I think, Divine something or other. I'm blanking on the title. Uh, people are people are finding uh, in the history of the field that there is a lot of material that we only glimpsed sideways in a sense. And now by looking at it from an Asian perspective, a South American perspective, an African perspective, I mean, Neti Okorafor's Lagoon is an alien invasion novel. But, but it's a completely new kind of alien invasion novel because it's in Lagos in Nigeria. And because, and, it brings other, and because it brings other elements into it as well. It's oh, not, sure. I mean, sure. perspective is important, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's the only new element. Uh, what makes Lagoon um, interesting is that it combines an old narrative with a Nigerian perspective and, in this particular instance, frankly, gaming sort of kinesthetics and everything else. Oh, yeah. So right. that it all explodes and moves and is engaging and, is, and, and it's a terrific book. I love it. But what I'd ask you then is, if this idea that we're in the era of perspectives is true, mm-hmm. and setting perspectives aside from inclusion a little bit, they're related, but they're not the same thing, as you yourself pointed out. Mm-hmm. This, is what's, this isn't who's writing the fiction, this is what's in the fiction, right? Yes, um, it's about the fiction. Yeah. What do you see as the next step then? How far into the era of perspectives do you think we are? I think we're well. We're, we're we're well into it. I mean, you could. I, I, I'm, what I'm saying was not new. You could find reviews back in the 1960s about Samuel Delaney's early novels or Joanna Russ's early novels as as bringing new perspectives to science fiction. I just don't think it was as dominant as it is now. And I think what's going to happen is that the perspectives be. And I think this is happening already. These perspectives begin to be ingrained in science fiction it no longer surprises anyone to see a science fiction novel set let's say in a future thailand um or um or even a future africa but africa is one of the latest perspectives to come in i'm fascinated by jeff ryman's uh you know work with promoting african science fiction writers most of whom we haven't seen yet so the project of broadening perspectives which was probably most dramatically uh, illustrated by Sushin Lu's winning a Hugo Award for the three-body problem, is never going to reach a saturation point, I don't think. Because we're, I'm not, you're right. We're not just talking about who writes science fiction. We're talking about what's in the fiction. In other words, anyone could write – and you know, anybody uh, – you know, a, a, a gay man in Somalia could write an ordinary science fiction story that might have appeared in uh, – anybody in the world could do that. What makes the story interesting is when those perspectives inform the story, I think. And, and so I see this going on for quite some time. <laughs> what do you think it says about science fiction engaging with what is possibly its primary mission, which is talking about and understanding the future in substantial ways, you know? Uh, I mean, you could argue maybe that's not, not what you think, it, what, it, what, it's, what it's about. But, you know, that whole what-if kind of thing, I mean, it's like, what is the future? I mean, are, are, is, is going to 
looking at perspectives a way of not engaging with the future because of the complexity of the future we're faced with scientifically, culturally, climatologically, or is it another tool that's going to let us do that? Well, it's another tool, but I think I, I, I don't think it's at all a turning away from from that. I think that what looking at science fiction, what what all these new perspectives in science fiction are doing, is giving us a set of alternate perspectives toward the future. Yeah, uh, giving giving us a sense that you know the this is one of the points of Ian McDonald's series of novels that the future, from the point of view of Brazil, might look a lot different from the perspective that we accept from you know the Anglo-American idea, the, the future. In other words, every part of the world has a different future, and we used to assume a kind of monolithic perspective perspective on the future. The, the future was going to be Western. The future was going to be the progress of Western liberalism until we reached something, God knows, looking like Trantor probably. <laughs> and now we're looking, no, there, there are lots of different, there are lots of different perspectives, and when, the more perspectives you bring to the table, the more different futures you see are possible. Fair enough. Let me ask you then the question that I find the most frustrating that I've ever put in a Crude Street podcast, which I don't think I put to you, but to this day frustrates me still, but is, and it's relevant here. Uh-huh. What do you think science fiction is for? Ah. Oh. There are two ways of answering that. Uh, I'm tempted to say the right way and the wrong way, and I only know the wrong way. But from a literary point of view, science fiction it does what literature does. Science fiction is uh, moving, sometimes life-changing stories about you know believable characters with believable problems, which involve sometimes technology, often the future, often not even that. The mission of science fiction as perceived by science fiction itself is something else. That is the idea that can science fiction really change the world. Um, I think that it can, but only very incrementally. I'm not an idealist in the sense of um, what we've talked about in terms of maybe Stan Robinson's utopianism. But when you mention something like The Expanse becoming a widely popular TV series, you're talking about the kind of incrementalism that I'm talking about. People are learning to think about the future in more sophisticated ways and are learning to accept more sophisticated ways of thinking about the future because as science fiction expands its reach, it begins to try to create a kind of popular intellectual fiction, which is really, I'm not sure, something that um, that has happened before. That may be true. I mean, what I find when I think about answering the, that question myself is that as much as science fiction is a literature, it's an ecology, there are all kinds of science fiction at any one time. And oh, yeah. any answer that you provide to it will, to the question, will, of course, not apply to all of it at all. It will only ever apply to a substrata or a particular group of substratas of science fiction at any given time. But that doesn't mean that asking the question and attempting to answer it is inherently either pointless or frivolous or glib, and you've been none of those things in trying to answer it. See, it seems to me that one of the key things about that science fiction is for is it's a tool. It's, it's, a, it's a tool for talking about what is happening to our world and what will happen to it next. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also entertainment. It's also all, all sorts of other things. And just as you could say that, you know, say New York 2140, the Stan Robinson novel, is a novel oh. that talks about how our world works and how it might work. You could turn around and say that, I don't know, off the top of my head, Lois McMaster Bujold's Brothers in Arms is intended for entertainment. Now, I have to tell you, New York 2140 is also intended as entertainment, just a different kind of entertainment, and maybe is yeah. it, you know. So I, I get that, but like I asked this question of, of of Robert Silverberg, possibly one of the most intelligent and intellectual people ever to write science fiction, and his response was that science fiction wasn't for anything, and I don't think that was a very ingenuous response, in the sense that I think he has, he himself used science fiction as a tool, as a a, 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 a literary approach that allowed him to achieve certain things. And some of it was the idea that, well, some of it was the idea of looking at people and how they change and evolve over time, society and how it evolves over time, uh, how the kind of things that we're confronting as we move into the future change us and what it says about what future mm-hmm. might be, the future might become. And that's what makes science fiction interesting, I think. I think most writers would agree with, with with Silverberg to the extent that if you ask him what fiction is for, you'd get the same response. To some extent, there's a there's a it's an art form, and to some extent, the the old Oscar Wilde dictum in the preface to the picture of Dorian Gray, all art is quite useless, uh, which is now viewed as a kind of decadent attitude, is an attitude that a lot of serious writers have. Art is not functional; it's not there. Uh, to perform a task uh, in society. And if you separate science fiction out and say, well, no, real literature is just an art form, but science fiction has to do this over here, I think you're being unfair to science fiction. I think science fiction can simply be beautiful stories. I'm not sure. Let's take the most popular story, most popular science fiction story this year, even though people read it years ago, was probably the story of, of, of Ted Chang, the story behind Arrival. Ted Chang stories of your life. stories of yeah, um, it's a beautiful story. It's it, it deals with fundamental issues of life. You know, what would you make of your life if you could see it all at once? Uh, and it puts this in the context of a kind of alien communication thing. The the key science fiction idea, I think, both in the story and in the movie, probably won't work. Um, in, in, in other words, the, the idea of just being able to translate a, a, an alien language which doesn't even use what we would consider an alphabet, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is its humanity. Um, so I don't think anybody who's read the story would argue it's not a beautiful work of art, but does it really function in any way other than what good literature always does? But then doesn't good literature, doesn't good art actually function? It gives you a perspective on the world. It gives you a perspective on ah. humanity moving through the world. Uh, I mean, that and, and you know, whether in the case of science fiction, it's also into the future or not. Mm-hmm. Surely it, 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 under, it undersells good art to say that it does not also do things. One of the things that makes it good art isn't just technical accomplishment, surely. Surely. It's the fact that it actually does something, that it moves you, it makes you, you know, it makes you think, it makes you feel, it changes, influences 
your perspective on the world and on yourself as you go through it. Okay, you've used the word you several times, and you're absolutely right, except that the word you has two completely different meanings when we start talking about literature as function. Literature affects you, that is me, the individual, mm. in, in very, very substantial ways. And any great art can affect individuals in very substantial ways. And I've, uh, I, I've talked to people who couldn't make heads or tails out of Ted Chang's The Story of Your Life. I've taken people to see Picasso's Guernica when, when it was still in New York. And some people would almost burst into tears at seeing that anti-war abstraction, semi-abstraction, and other people saying, I don't get it. So the reaction of art is always to you, the individual. When you start talking about art having a function in society, you're talking about you, the collective. What does science fiction do to society as a whole? Um, you can point to some things over the years that probably have um, stirred groups of people toward careers in the sciences or careers in technology and that sort of thing. There may be some very general things, but when you get beyond what any work of art does for you, the individual, and say, what does it do for you, the community, or you, the society, or, 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 or you, the, the subgroup, then it gets really hard to measure. I think that's true. I think that's true. I mean, that being said, science fiction has created a community somehow mm -hmm. of really pretty smart, likable people. And, you know, I, you and I wouldn't have been in this community as long as we have if we didn't have some kind of thing. So science fiction collectively does something collectively to a bunch of us. Yes, it does. Um, and, but, and probably far more of us than we realize, you know, I because see. after all, there's a lot of people who read, watch, listen to, whatever, something science fictional in their lives without identifying themselves as being part of a science fiction community in any way. I, th I think that science fiction has generally made people more aware of the manageability or lack of manageability of the future, the idea as to whether or not it can be uh, controlled. It's, that, that's something which has been a, a major theme in science fiction. I think it's something a lot of science fiction readers have in common, that you know the future can be uh, manipulated. One of the things, there was an interesting book I read years ago, and it's probably superseded by other books, I think by a scholar named Fred Pollack, P-O-L-A-K, called The Image of the Future, and it was a history of the idea of the future. Um, and it turns out that, according to this guy, throughout much of the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, there wasn't a future. The future was going to be either in heaven or hell or nothing at all. But the idea of affecting the world for generations after you've left the world just didn't occur to people. Um, it, began, it begins to happen with the Industrial Revolution. It doesn't really enter fiction much except in – not even in visionary literature. It doesn't really enter fiction much until you get science fiction. You know, and, and, and I think that does over time, the science fictional way of looking at the world, change the perspectives of large numbers of people on, on the fact that there's going to be a future whether we try to influence it or not. And that is and, why if James Bradley is listening, he and I should have edited that book we talked about doing, The Book of the Future. About how the it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about and to look at. Well, so, well yeah, one one of the things that um, it's 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 an old cliche when you used to I, I used to say this to my introductory college students that because uh, I was trying to get them to think about I was trying to get them to read science fiction. Everybody tries to sneak science fiction into your classes, 
and and the, 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 the canned speech was <coughs> basically once you graduate from college you can move anywhere you want to in the world if you if you, if you get a job in South America or Saudi Arabia or Antarctica you can do that but you can't choose when you're going to live the one place you have no choice about um, is is the future mm-hmm. and to try to get them to think about that it's amazing even today that that comes as a revelation to a lot of young people <coughs> well I guess I mean because yes you, you know sort of of course you you can't change the time you live in but Gary but but, but Gary yes what what are you gonna say we're, 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 I was going to say, yeah, we're, we're, we're really starting to get philosophical now, and we'd better stop before um, – we'd better stop because I'm actually out of this nice French uh, apple and pear cider that I was drinking. And I've got <coughs> to go watch my daughter's band play. <coughs> oh, that sounds wonderful. Ooh, should be fun. So we will wind up. We will come back next week. We will know about right, the Hugo Awards wait, 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 next week, yeah? Absolutely. We'll know what the Hugo Award nominations are by next week. But – in advance, because this is the Crude Street Podcast, I think you would join me in congratulating all the nominees out there who are already nominees, who are already, I mean, like, you know who you are. Uh, congratulations to all the nominees yes, out yes. there. If you happen to be listening, we don't know who you are, but whoever you are, congratulations and good luck in Helsinki. Yeah, we hope to see you, you know, we hope, well, we hope to be. I don't know. We hope to be there. We're we going to be there. We hope, well, we'll we'll act, we'll be sitting in the audience waving at you, successful people. Um, and so, uh-huh. yeah, until such times. But 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 with that, we shall try and find somebody interesting to talk to next week. Maybe Stan will come on. Maybe someone else, and and we'll be back then. Until then, this has been the Good Street Podcast. It has indeed. <laughs>